you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. The CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. It's Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. Thechrisvossshow.com. Welcome to the big show, my family and friends. The big circus stint in the sky. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all ages, welcome to the Chris Voss Show podcast. Uh, today, we're going to be talking baseball, the Yankees. You may have heard of them, uh, a storied uh, baseball franchise uh, with uh, multiple winners. And we're going to be talking about uh, number 62, Aaron Judge, today. And uh, a great new book that's come out on him uh, that we'll be talking about as well. In the meantime, though, we have to always guilt and shame with the uh, podcast ad plugs, as always. Uh, but they're pretty simple. Just refer the show to your family, friends, and relatives. Go to YouTube.com, Fortress Chris Foss. LinkedIn.com for it says Chris Foss, uh, Goodreads.com for it says Chris Foss, um, and uh, let's see, there's the new uh, threads there on the Instagram uh, thing. There's the Twitter competitor. Go see us at the uh, Chris Foss official and the Chris Foss show over there as well. Uh, today we have an amazing gentleman and author on the show. He's the author of the latest book that has come out uh, July 11th, 2023. It'll be coming out. Uh, you can pre-order it now wherever fine books are sold. Uh, 62, Aaron Judge. The New York Yankees in the pursuit of greatness. Brian Hoke is on the show with us today. He's going to be talking about his amazing new book. He's covered New York baseball for the past two decades, serving as MLB.com's Yankees beat reporter since 2007 while making regular appearances on MLB Network. A two-time New York City marathon finisher, his wife Connie once danced on stage with Bruce Springsteen. Did she upstage you with that, or did Bruce upstage you with that? What's going on? Oh here? yeah, I mean it's hard to compete with Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. So yeah, no, I uh, I think uh, she gets top billing there. Oh, there you go. Well, you probably still forgave her because it it is Bruce Springsteen after all, really. When it comes it's down, the boss. It's the boss. <laughs> Come on, man. Yeah. There you go. So the boss met the boss. I see how that works. Uh, so welcome to the show, Brian. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm here in Yankee Stadium. It's a beautiful day. You can't tell by this uh, little back room that I'm in, but. Uh, it is beautiful. The sun is out, and the Yankees are going to play the Orioles here tonight. Yeah, what a! I mean, what a great place you're calling right. You're calling right from inside the building. <laughs> I, I, it, the, the call is coming from inside the building. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go. So, give us the dot coms. Where do you want people to find you on the interwebs, please? Uh, easiest way would be to go to Brian Hoke H O C H dot com, and that's uh, that's the landing page for everything. You can find out about all the books, all the stories I'm writing for uh, MLB.com, Yankees.com. And, of course, you mentioned all the – yeah, we got to do threads now, huh? I, I just signed up for threads yesterday, and so uh, it feels like 2009 all over again with uh, the wild, wild west of Twitter. But, yeah, obviously Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, and God, whatever comes next, right? Yeah, I'm still trying to get caught up on TikTok, like, uh, you know – I'm too old, and our our, our, our stuff is lo- probably a little too highbrow for most of the TikTok stuff. They're just like reading books. What's going on? <laughs> I don't, I don't get this guy. Um, so welcome to the show. Uh, what motivated you want to write this book? Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, obviously, Judge, uh, as we know now, uh, wound up 
catching Roger Maris, eclipsing it, setting the new single-season American League home run record, and that's where 62 comes from. But uh, really, it started coming into my mind last season around the All-Star break, probably right around now, actually. The Yankees were off to a great start. They had a, about a 15-and-a-half game lead in the American League East, and Judge was playing like an MVP. And I'm not great at math, but I know that 31 is half of 62. So I know he had already gone about halfway there. And so that's, this is about the point last year where I started just kind of collecting, just in case. And then uh, <laughs> once once he got around to August and uh, he had 50 home runs, I said, I, I started looking at the calendar. I said, he's going to break this record. And uh, it wasn't a question of if he would, I think. It was more when. And so by that point, I started saying, okay, there is a story to be told here. And uh, I don't want it to just be the day-to-day -day story of Judge chasing this record, but this chase, this home run pursuit, is a great way to kind of branch out, and it gives us a lot of spokes on the wheel to kind of talk about a lot of things about Major League Baseball, about the Yankees, about Judge, and uh, to kind of peel back the layers of history and talk about what Roger Maris did in, in 1961. So I think it, it came together nicely. It was a, a perfect jumping-off point to really tell some great baseball stories. There you go. And to, to introduce people more to baseball, maybe some in our audience that are uh, laymen to, to baseball sure. uh, and, and what the number 62 represents, give us the foundation of what that is and why, why it's important and Babe Ruth and, and everything else. Absolutely. So what we have is three great Yankees right fielders in Babe Ruth, Roger Maris, and now Aaron Judge, who have all held this same record, uh, 60, 61, and 62 of the single season home run record in the American League. Now, uh, they all played for the same team, played the same position, different ballparks, different eras, of course. But uh, there is that connection there, that through line between Ruth and Maris and now Judge. And, uh, now, it's important to note that 62 is the American League record, but it is not the Major League record. Now, if you, uh, yeah, uh, 73 is actually a Major League record. Barry Bond said it back in 2001, but... Huh. As we found out about Bonds and Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, uh, those were all performance-enhanced and or, or expected to be performance-enhanced. And uh, I'll give myself some cover there. But I think that when we look at the McGuire, Bonds, Sosa records now differently than uh, certainly I do than what I saw last year with Judge, where uh, testing is now in place and uh, essentially everybody agrees that Judge did it clean, and so. Now, this is, uh, we certainly talked to Roger Maris Jr., who uh, wrote the forward to this book, and he says that uh, he now considers 62 the real record that mm -hmm. Judge set last year. If you ask me, Bonds, I saw him do it, 73. I watched it, it happened. I don't want to pretend it didn't, but I do, I do put it in a different bucket than what I saw last year with Judge. And is this more important uh, in, in this time and day and age because of that kind of, I think they kind of called it the asterisk era of, of uh, you know, the bonds and, and all those things with the performance enhanced. They're like kind of there's like an asterisk there as to those numbers. <laughs> Sometimes uh, actually a real literal asterisk. Uh, you know, <laughs> one of the things that we have in the book here is that the record-breaking home run, it was actually uh, the home run that Barry Bonds hit to pass Henry Aaron. It was mm -hmm. the 756th career home run, and this is a career home run record, but it was purchased at auction by Mark Echo, who you wow. may know, he's a designer, and uh, he paid a lot of money to it, 
he stamped it with an asterisk and then he donated it to the Hall of Fame that was in Cooperstown, New York. And you can actually go see it. It's still there wow. on display because it's history. But, uh, you know, and obviously this guy had m the money to literally put an asterisk on this ball and uh, say, yeah, it's a record, but it's stained in some way. And so uh, I, I think that, uh, look, Barry Bonds is a fantastic player. McGuire, so, so they, those guys deserve to be mentioned. Uh, but there is a reason that none of those three players are in Cooperstown right now. Oh, wow. Do you think they ever will be? You know, I, I think that if Bonds isn't going to get in, and he had 10 cracks there on the uh, the writer's ballot, he didn't mm. get in, um, I, then I would say it's questionable. Because basically, mm. if you just looked at the numbers alone, uh, mm. Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens both should have been first ballot Hall of Famers. Uh, they were both among the greatest players that I ever saw with my own two eyes. and mm. uh, But we found out too much, and uh, I think that the chemical enhancements, the artificial there, uh, that has definitely clouded it for a lot of the voters. Hi, folks. Here's Foss here with a little station break. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. We'll resume here in a second. Uh, I'd like to invite you to come to my coaching speaking and training courses website you can also see our new podcast over there at chrisvossleadershipinstitute.com over there you can find all the different stuff that we do for speaking engagements if you'd like to hire me uh training courses that we offer and coaching for leadership management entrepreneurism uh podcasting corporate stuff uh with over 35 years of experience in business and running companies as ceo and be sure to check out chris Voss leadership institute.com now back to the show and so this probably adds a lot more value to what aaron judge did then yeah that and that i think it's important to make that connection is that we haven't seen a season like that since the years where i'm talking about it the late 90s and the early 2000s when uh honestly it, it kind of made a mockery of the record book and people were breaking records every single year and then baseball finally cracked down and lo and behold the power numbers came back down to earth a little bit so i think that to have Judge uh, doing it on the stage that he did it in New York City, playing for a prestigious franchise like the New York Yankees, it really did capture the national attention. And, uh, you know, they were cutting in on college football broadcasts in September to show his at-bats, which when have we ever seen that before? That's true. And when I saw that happening, I said, all right, this is more than just the Yankees right fielder is having a good season. This is more than just he's having an MVP season. It's more than just the Yankees are trying to lock up a playoff spot. This has become kind of a national phenomenon where even the Today Show and Jimmy Fallon are doing segments on the home run chase. And I said, this is something bigger. And I, I, it's a story that needs to be told in more of a long-form format. And for those who aren't big into baseball, why is it so hard to get to 62? I mean, what are the odds? I mean, clearly there's only been three people who have naturally gotten to it in, in the history of baseball. Why, why is that? And why is, it, why is it so hard? I mean, why does it mean something? Well, I think it's hard just to hit one. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's obviously uh, hitting a baseball. You know, Ted Williams always used to say hitting a baseball is the hardest thing to do in sports. And you think about it, you got a guy who's 60 feet, six inches away from you, and he's throwing it uh, in the high 90 mile per hour. You have a split second to react. And uh, even, especially now, I think the pitchers are just becoming tougher and tougher to hit. Let, let's compare it to 1961 when Roger Maris broke that record and was in pursuit of that, you typically would face the same pitcher three or four times a game, and he's getting tired out there on the mound, and they weren't throwing that hard to begin with. They may be throwing 90 miles an hour, probably more likely 85 miles an hour. 
Now, in the modern day, you've got a complete stable of guys in the bullpen who are coming out. Uh, you go to the bullpen a lot earlier in the modern game. Guys are coming out throwing 97, 98, 99 miles an hour, some, some in the triple digits. You have a fraction of a second to react to those pitches coming in. They're throwing hellacious breaking stuff. It's not just fastballs and changeups. They have sliders. They have curveballs. They have all sorts of pitches, and, and there's a reason that batting averages around the game have gone down, and uh, baseball has actually tried to counteract that by making some changes here in 2023. But last year, uh, it was hard to hit, uh, basically. And uh, I think Judge did it on a level that we haven't seen. And from wire to wire, he had an MVP-type year and did it in the – uh, in the shadow of a contract push, too, where wow. that was another thing with the business going on, the business side of baseball that we could explore in this book. Uh, he was he betting on himself. The Yankees offered him a lot of money, a contract extension on opening day. He turned it down, said, no, I'm going to bet on myself, and I bet I could do better than that. And darn if he didn't. He went out, had a great season, a season for the ages, and was rewarded with a nine-year, $360 million contract and uh, named the 16th captain in New York Yankees history. So he really, he, he, to use the baseball phrase here, he picks the perfect game from start to finish last year. There you go. That guy wanted a raise, damn it. <laughs> well, he was going to get raised in one way or the other. They offered him $213.5 million on opening day. And I remember I was there in the press conference, and I'll use a prop here. I had my notepad, and I remember writing that down, and I said, 213.5. I, I think I would take that offer. Yeah, I probably and so would Yeah, and so credit to him. He, he looked at the competition out there, and he uh, you're in L.A., so you know. Uh, he, he looked at Mike Trout, and he said, no, I'm going to get paid like Mike Trout. I want to be the high among the highest-paid players wow. in the game. And he said, and you're going to pay me like Mike Trout because I'm going to go out and have a season for the ages, and he did. And he put it all together. And the question with Judge his entire career has never been about the talent. It's been about the health because you got a guy who's 6'7", 282 pounds. He's essentially a football player in baseball cleats. But uh, last year, it, it was just one of the greatest seasons I've ever seen. And he kind of has a, you know, you talk in the book about how he kind of has this kind of, I don't want to say backwards, but, you know, coming from that sort of aw shucks demeanor, small town California, all the way to stardom, you know, somebody who's not like, you know, an egotistical sort of rock star, like I can do whatever, you know, a humbleness sort of thing of coming from, uh, you know, America, kind of what we kind of imagine baseball. Yeah, baseball works. The the American pie, you know, American American culture sort of thing, whatever. There's a lot of that there too. I mean, there's so many different angles. I mean, he's adopted. He's biracial. Wow. He's the. Uh, it's a product of two educators, high school teachers, who uh, really were no nonsense. They raised him the right way. And if he came home and wanted to play video games and go ride his bike, he he couldn't do it until his homework was <laughs> was done. I mean, we are talking kind of a Andy Griffith type upbringing and wow. he grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area but a little more inland and so mm -hmm. he grew up cheering for the San Francisco Giants but he's more uh, it, it, the place he grew up is called Linden California it's the cherry festival capital of the world they have a oh, big wow. annual festival every year so it, it's very agricultural and rural up there and he talks about it as a perfect place to grow up. You know, you go down to the neighborhood pizza shop and you, everybody in town knows everybody. And he said, the way he put it in the book, he said, I had a mom in every house on my block because uh, <laughs> they, they it kind of paints a picture of this kind of picturesque 
1950s type uh, upbringing, and then you airdrop this kid who uh, just happened to be taller and stronger than everybody in his town. It's kind of like a Clark Kent thing, uh, Clark Kent Superman, um, where you airdrop him into the middle of Manhattan and you say, all right, you are now the face of the New York Yankees. And uh, we kind of trace that adjustment process, and it took some time. It did, because uh, for a kid who was a little bit shy and a little bit uh, awkward at times uh, to kind of grow into himself. And one of the uh, the scouts I talked to, the baseball scouts who watched him in his high school years, said this kid was like a newborn giraffe just trying to find his footing in a lot of ways. And he was kind of gangly and awkward. And then you look now, and uh, I think the Clark Kent Superman thing is actually very uh, appropriate because he is a superhero in baseball clothes. I mean, if you were going to draw a picture of a, an extra strong athlete, um, if you had never watched a baseball game in your life and you came and watched the Yankee game, you would look at Judge and you would say, wow, he must be the best player on the field. And I, I think that that's not something that uh, you can, that comes very easily. It's, it's more than just the raw physique. It's the way he carries himself and handles himself, too. There you go. Uh, you know, it, you go from the small town to the, uh, the big show in the big city, basically. And yeah. so uh, it, it's it's quite the ride. And so you detail what it's like for him to grow up as a child, his birth and, and everything, and, and, and all the way up to that, and, and the, some of the things that shaped him and, and made him into the person he became. Absolutely. And I think that's a big part of the story because uh, for so many – it's hard to make it in the major leagues. The, the odds are astronomical against you playing one game in the major leagues, let alone to be named rookie of the year and to become the starting right fielder for the most prestigious franchise in major league baseball. And uh, then to become an all-star and uh, win an MVP award. I, I think it took a lot of people along the way to draw him to that point. And we, we kind of investigate that. Uh, one of the big situations he had was in 2016 he finally made his major league debut and he gets called up he hits a home run in his first at bat so he starts off great but then he realizes that it is really difficult at the major league level and he winds up his batting average is 179 at the end of the year and so that's obviously a striking out a lot he goes home and on the flight back to california he pulls out his iphone and he types in the notes column there. He says 179, dot 179 at the top. And he wanted to use that as motiva uh, motivation to basically say, never again. I'm going to do everything in my power to work and make sure that this never happens again because he got embarrassed by it. And major league pitchers were, were eating him up for lunch. You know, they had figured out, hey, don't throw the big kid a fastball down the middle. And he was just striking out over and over. And so one of the things that he did was uh, somebody with his agency connected him with this guy named Richard Schenk, who is, is a character, man. He's a, uh, a self-taught hitting instructor in St. Peter's, Missouri. He actually owns a billiards hall. And wow. by just by watching on TiVo, uh, watching Barry Bonds at bats and rolling them back with a, uh, with a wiffle ball bat in his basement, he somehow has or claims to have unlocked the secret of what made Barry Bonds great. And so somebody in Judge's agency said, hey, why don't you go talk to this guy? And so they did set up a meeting. And uh, at first, he was very skeptical, as I would be, too, uh, that this kind of mid-50s guy with a little punch over his, uh, his tummy and in jeans and dad jeans could somehow 
out hit a professional athlete, but they did what was called a contact drill, a contact drill, where they would put a tee side by side and they would say, go. And every time this guy Richard would get to the ball faster than Judge did. And so after a couple rounds of that, Judge looked at him and said, hey, man, what are you doing here? And so that started this kind of uh, renaissance that Judge did in shortening his swing, getting to the ball faster, hitting it harder. Oh. And so this is really uh, the building blocks. And it's, it, t- it takes you a little bit behind the scenes of what made Aaron Judge a great all-star athlete. Wow. I mean, it, it, and the swing is important, too, even though everything's coming at you at 100 miles, you know, an hour roughly, and, and uh, you've got a split second, you know, that, that whole swing and, the, and, and how you swing it and how you use it, you know, I, I learned a little, a little bit uh, at the, what was it, it was the golf, it was the golf legend, Ar- Arnold Palmer's uh, School of Golf, and uh, man, I mean, just, it, it's like, it's like an artwork, it's a science, it's a, it's craziness to be able to get that perfect, and I imagine for it, it varies depending upon what sort of athlete you are, size and build, and and everything else. Absolutely, there's so many different mechanics, and yeah, when I was trying to learn to play golf, I read I read the same book you did, <laughs> <laughs> trying to break down the swing and then try to learn from the pros there. And um, yeah, I mean, but anybody who has. Uh, going to a golf course or uh, trying to hit in a game can tell you that just because you swing it right one time doesn't mean you're going to do it the next time. The next time, my, my golf ball is going in the sand or it's going off into the uh, the lake. and uh, it, it, It's very rare to be able to do it consistently over and over and over. And I think that's what makes the professionals great is that they're not perfect every single time. And you're going to see a professional athlete strike out. It's part of the game. It happens. They're going to look silly sometimes. But it's cutting down on those errors. And, yeah, to use that golf analogy and take it one step further, it's I'm chasing my golf ball in the woods every single time and trying to hack it out of the high grass. These guys are probably keeping it on the fairway if they were professional golfers. Oh yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, it, it professional sports players. I mean, like I see like professional hockey guys, and those guys can land a puck on a on a nail on a plane flying down the highway or something. You know, it's just insane what they can do. But yeah, it's it's hard it, and it's challenging, and then it's grueling, and you know. I know uh, the the MLBs, you know, try to do different things to tweak the game, maybe speed it up. I know they've got those those cool boxes now that you know you can kind of see what's going on with the strike zone and stuff. And and how's that all working out for the baseball? Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what, as a reporter, I love the pitch clock because uh, baseball has always been the one game, well, one of the games. I guess golf is one, but without a clock, basketball mm-hmm. has a clock, hockey has a clock, football has a clock. But with baseball, if the pitcher wanted to stand there on the mound and not throw the ball for 20 minutes, he could, like, yeah. in theory. Uh, now you can't do that anymore. Now you're limited to 15 or 20 seconds. Wow. And so it really has cut down on the dead time. And what I found, I was a little skeptical about it, too. Uh, this is the first year we've had the rule change here. The pitch clock has changed it so much for the better because it's cut out a lot of the dead time where guys are standing around and adjusting their belt and tying their shoes. You can't do that stuff anymore. And so now you've compressed it where you're just getting the action. And you've lost none of the action. The pitches are still being thrown. The hits are coming off the bat. Guys are running around the bases. That's what we come here to a ball game to watch. And the difference is that we're doing it now you know, two and a half hours, two forty-five instead of three forty-five or four hours, and yeah. I just think that, uh, especially with this younger generation, 
First of all, a four-hour baseball game is too long anyway, in my opinion. Um, you know, and I've lived through so many of them. The Yankees, Red Sox, Sunday night at Fenway Park where I'm walking out at 1.30, 2 in the morning, and I'm just saying, oh, my gosh, I, I got to catch a flight in the morning. What am I doing here? Now we're cutting that down to a, a much more reasonable. But uh, And it's not about me. It's about the fans. You know, kids yeah. want to stay up and watch these games. Kids want to... Uh, kids have school in the morning. People have to go to work in the morning. Uh, I think that it's uh, baseball listening to what their customers need. And sometimes that means, hey, speed it up a little bit. And they still want to see nine innings. They want to see runs scored. They want to see the action on the field. We just don't need to see guys standing around uh, for, you know, un unknown amounts of time. I think it's great. I mean, I understood the the prior way. You know, it was kind of like a chess match or a, right. a, a poker game sort of thing where you're you're kind of playing and there's a little bit of, mentally screwing with each other I, I think that's one of the challenges of of baseball too you know it's been kind of glorified in in uh, different movies about how, how uh you know baseball players have a lot of time on their hands maybe than some other people and they're you know they're very superstitious and they have different things and when you're in the dugout and you've got time you know it can fuck with your head you know especially probably if you're trying to get to 62 and you know you hit 50 and you're like Oh man, it's gonna. Be, yeah. And then you, and then you get down to those last two. And I think I remember this. You know, they were playing on TV. They're like, ah, he's almost there. And you're like, hey, I wonder what it would like to be that guy. Where you know, there the whole was, world's going. When are you gonna hit the next one? And hey, like, yeah, and yeah, we uh, we we get we definitely get into that in the book. The pressure that was put on him, and because it became this phenomenon where where Judge wanted to go out there every day and try and help the Yankees win. And that was his goal. That was his single mindset. The fans and the media, we all came here for a different reason. And you could tell that, uh, especially in Yankee Stadium, during the late in the chase when he's around 57, 58 home runs, uh, the crowd was different here. It was wow. dead silent like the Masters, you know, run when wow. he would come up to the plate because everybody came out and pulled out their cell phones and was recording every pitch of it, waiting to see if they were going to be a witness to history. And it just got kind of weird at times. Some of the Yankees were getting up out of the dugout and saying, hey, it's okay to make noise here. Um, it's weird to have the ballpark be completely quiet, everybody standing, and like just kind of this it's, exactly. It was kind of this hush, and it's nothing that I've ever experienced before. You know, uh, I, and during my time on the beat, I was here when Derek Jeter was chasing 3,000 hits, which is a great career milestone, and Alex Rodriguez did the same. Uh, but we knew that they were going to get there eventually. It was yeah. it was a career record. This would judge. There was kind of a time limit here, and you would be looking at the calendar, and you say, "Oh, they've only got twelve games left. They've got ten games left. Oh, uh, he's down to seven games left. Is he going to get there? And if he didn't get there, then the numbers were going to completely reset for this year. So uh, there was definitely pressure, and obviously uh, there were family members coming in, friends, and it, it was all anybody was talking about. And sometimes. <laughs> He would hit a ball. I, I vividly remember this. They were playing a game here in Yankee Stadium, and he hit a ball down the left field line, a double. And he's running into second base, and you kind of hear the crowd go, oh. oh wow. <laughs> exactly. And, up. and it was just kind of like, what? You know, <laughs> I understand we all want to see a home run here, but home runs don't happen every single day. So yeah. it, it was, But it was cool. It was a phenomenon unlike any I've experienced. 
Uh, and, and probably really good for baseball and, and giving a resurgence and, and I like all the changes they're making and stuff. Uh, it, it's fun. You know, I, I grew up with old world baseball. You know, I grew up a, uh, Dodgers fan and, uh, uh, who was my favorite, uh, player back in the seventies? Uh, Steve Garvey. Steve Garvey. I bet. Steve Garvey yeah. yeah. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, I, I love the game, but yeah, there's only so many times I can watch you tie your shoe and, and rearrange <laughs> the business and and uh, talk to the manager and stuff and you know i remember those days so there you go uh what do you hope people come away from when they read the book i I hope they come away with an appreciation for uh where we stand right now in baseball history it's it's great to talk about judge and uh you know he's fantastic player of course and it is a book that centers on judge but there's a lot of different angles that i wanted to explore in this and so while it is a book about judge and it is a book about how the new york yankees are run in this day and age i feel like fans of any team will come away from reading this book and kind of learn something about baseball the way it's operating because i was able to you know through my day job here at mlb.com I know almost everybody here in the Yankee organization, and I, I have their contact information. I was able to lean upon them and kind of peel back the layers of the onion here and say, all right, when this was happening, what was going on behind the scenes? When this was happening, what was the thought process in that? And so there's a lot of stories from behind the scenes in a major league front office that you're not going to find anywhere else in this book, and I'm proud of that. I'm also proud of uh the historical work I was able to do here, because one thing I did not want to do in this book was just have a recounting of, hey, it would have been very easy, but I could have just said, on this day, Judge hit home run number 48, and then on this day, he hit number 49. That that would have been boring to me, and I already lived it once, so I didn't feel like that was the, the story I wanted to tell. So, as I mentioned earlier, what I wanted to do was connect him uh, to Babe Ruth, to Roger Maris, and by doing that, I, I dug through a lot of books, a lot of archival newspapers, uh, there's not many guys left from the 1961 Yankees. Unfortunately, Roger Maris isn't, isn't with us anymore. But there are two players left from that team, in Bobby Richardson and Tony Kubek. And I was able to get both of them to talk at length for this book. Oh, wow. and not just about what Roger Maris went through in 1961, because that's been well chronicled. But I wanted to get their take on what it was like here in this Twitter, Instagram world of 2022 to watch somebody another yankee going after their friend rogers record and they were both great on that so i I feel like we have these vignettes throughout the book where we kind of flash back to 1961 and it ties everything together really nicely to the kind of the history of baseball because one thing baseball does better than any other sport i would argue is it celebrates its own history and Mm -hmm. what happened today is connected to what happened yesterday and uh, i definitely wanted to make that point that uh, this does not exist in a vacuum it's not just about one player having a great year it's a it's a book about baseball that i think a fan of any team will will really find something they enjoy and and coming from uh you know uh small town and greatness and and uh going through the gauntlet of life and and the journey of of uh, learning your trade and your craft and and then and then being super successful and awesome it's been wonderful having you on the show, Brian. Give us your .com so people can find you on the internet, please. Sure, absolutely. It's great being on with you. Thank you, Chris. Uh, it's Brian, B-R-Y-A-N dash H-O-C-H, Hoke at, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, I was giving you my email address. My bad. Although you can email me too if you want to. It's uh, Brian dash Hoke dot com. B-R-Y-A-N dash H-O-C-H dot com. There you go. Uh, Thank you very much again, Brian, for being on the show. 
Thanks, my audience, for tuning in. Go to goodreads.com, Fortress Chris Foss, youtube.com, Fortress Chris Foss, and all those crazy places we are on the internet. Order up the book wherever fine books are sold, uh, but stay out of those alleyway bookstores because you might end up uh, getting in, uh, you know, you might know, get mugged. Anyway, I was trying to find the page I was looking for. Uh, order up wherever fine books are sold. 62, Aaron Judge, The New York Yankees, and The Pursuit of Greatness available July 11th, 2023. Thanks for tuning in. Be good to each other. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. I should.